Welcome to Maker Mixtapes. I'm Tom Watley, and today we get into the weeds on pretty much everything you need to know about starting a podcast. Kristen LaFrance is Head of Resilient Retail at Shopify, a show dedicated to sharing real stories of struggle and breakthrough that retail businesses need right now. It's a very podcast-heavy episode today. Kristen didn't hold back on sharing her podcast production process, the importance of having a purpose with your podcast, and setting your guests up for success. Uh, She also does a terrific job of getting me to drop the odd innuendo. It was a really fun chat, and it's a great episode for anyone who wants to start a podcast or upgrade their current podcast experience, so do enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me. I thought a great place to start would be to get a little bit meta because I know you're a huge proponent of podcasting and it's actually how I came to discover you through the Playing for Keeps podcast that you did for Chain Buster. And I'd love to learn about what drove you to starting that show in the first place and what is it that keeps your passion for this format, the one that we're doing right now, burning? Yeah, uh, great question. And I actually, I love that you asked this because the story behind Playing for Keeps is kind of one of my favorites. So I was at Churnbuster and when I first joined, we were really marketing in like the B2B SaaS space and the founding team of Churnbuster had run a podcast in their like previous life. It was something that they had done like as a full business model. So they knew kind of the power of podcasting. And it was in my first like six months, the CEO was like, Hey, I think that, you know, we could do a podcast about SaaS customer retention. And at that point, like that version of Kristen, I literally like laughed at him. I was like, no, like I am not the person who goes and talks to people. I'm the one who hides behind a keyboard and like just writes things and moves on. That was like a very strong, very strong note for me. And he was like, okay. And then we ran, you know, we ran content for another year or so. And then we switched and started advertising really heavily in the D2C e-commerce subscription space. And then from there, it was like, my job for two years was basically go understand the D2C space, get to know the operators, figure out what they want, what they need, and what the topic of retention is right now and how we can get in front of it. And within that discovery, it became very clear that one, retention was kind of this, like almost this new age idea back then. This is like 2018, which is only two years ago, but like, it's been a long two years. And this was the time where like D2C was kind of shifting from the growth at all costs model to the, oh my God, Facebook ads are really expensive. And so now we're going to pay this much. We better find a way to get them to come back and buy again. And so you're having all these conversations going around, like, what is retention? Is it more important than acquisition? How do you balance the two? How do you even do customer retention? And it became really clear to me that, you know, with marketing in D2C, you can literally just go to a directory of D2C brands and go look at everything they're doing. You can go look at their Facebook ads. You can start to kind of build that playbook just by looking at what people are doing. But with retention, it happens behind the scenes of a company. It happens in the interactions between the customers and the brand. And it's in all these channels that depending on if you're a customer of that brand or not, or how you engage with that brand, you're going to get different retention strategies coming from that brand. And so it's clear, like we can't even talk about retention strategies without going and talking to the people who are doing them because we can't find them from the outside. Like I can't just go research it and have really great ideas. It was like, there was this whole of what are the operators on retention actually doing and how do they think about it and how do they execute it? And so 
that then came, you know, immediately it was like, well, crap, I know exactly what we have to do. Like, I'm going to have to jump on and talk to people. And I, at first I was like, well, I could just interview people, not record it and then write the blog post. But then I was like, ah, shoot, if I'm going to interview them, I should probably hit record. If I'm going to hit record, I should probably have a nice microphone. And it just kind of rolled into this like realization where I was like, oh, oh yeah, I'm going to have to do this. And, and <laughs> so that became, yeah, snowballed into uh, almost forced my hand into becoming a podcast host and quickly found that I loved it. And it was a lot of fun. And it's just this totally new way to connect with people. And to your second question, kind of like why I've kept this love for podcasting. I think it's a mix of a couple things. One, I think that content has previously been a little bit dry and shallow and bland and missing some authenticity and missing some like deep nuance in it, which you get in conversations is you actually get into like the nuances and the weirdness of what they're doing. And it's so much more than like, here are four strategies for you. Uh, so that is one thing I just feel like so much of marketing is relationship-based right now and community-based. And there is no better way to build a community than just, just like get on the phone with somebody for an hour. All of a sudden you have this deep connection with them. And then the biggest thing for me on podcasting is you know, I come from this like very strategic content marketing background. And what I say to everybody is like, podcasting is just such an entryway to create a ridiculous waterfall of content. Some people call it a flywheel of content. I've somehow adopted like waterfall recently. But the idea is, you know, if I want to build, talking about resilient retail, if I want to build a place for brick and mortar retailers to come find inspiration and tactical advice and connection. If I start with a podcast, then I've got, you know, one hour long interview turns into a blog post and a tweet storm and an Instagram feed and a transcript that's SEO. And it just builds on itself. You know, it's almost like overwhelming. Like I'm looking at season one and I'm like, oh, I did like 10% of what I could have done with that content. And now I have to figure out how to run a season two and do more with that content. But that's, I mean, that's the beauty of podcasting is like, you just get so much that kind of snowball into something bigger and bigger and build. I mean, it's just the repurposing abilities of podcasting is amazing. And I just get to talk to cool people all day. Like <laughs> I can't complain about my job at all. <laughs> 100%. I love the waterfall analogy as well. Yeah. It, it's uh, a lot nicer visually than the flywheel. And it's interesting you, you talk about, you know, the connections that you're making throughout this, because I know you've created a bunch of content in the past in the form of guest posts and Twitter threads, which kind of led you to being crowned the mayor of DTC Twitter. And yes. how has that journey led you down any unexpected paths or connected you with people you never would have connected otherwise? Because people are using Twitter as a better LinkedIn right now, which is amazing. Yeah. I mean, I have to credit Twitter with everything my career has become, other than, you know, the work I put in and the opportunities that were given to me and all these, all these soft things. But with Twitter, you know, I was talking about at some point we switched when I was at Churnbuster to say D2C is our main focus. And so I just had to go on this extreme journey of market research and finding the influencers and finding the topics and understanding what was going on in this space. It was just clear that that was happening on Twitter. So I just kind of jumped in with both feet and I was like, well, I'm going to start commenting on people's threads and I'm going to start reading all these newsletters. And then it was like, well, I'm just going to start sharing what I think about this stuff that I'm learning. And that then became like, I just started roping people into kind of this tornado of content that I was putting out where if I put out a tweet storm and it was purely coming from a place of, 
I'm just trying to learn this. And like, what do you guys think about my thoughts? Then I start tagging people and I'm bringing people into this conversation and I start engaging with so many people. But ultimately, like this title of mayor of D2C Twitter, which I still don't know how I how I managed to do it. You know, now I have a D2C fam Slack group that has almost 500 members in it right now. It's growing. Like I didn't even have a strategy behind this Slack group. I still don't. It's unorganized, but people just like love it because it's this free space that we've built. And then ultimately that brought me to Shopify. Like I was hired on Shopify because somebody I posted, Hey, I'm officially looking for a new job. Here's what I want. And somebody from Shopify came into my DMs and said, Oh, Hey, I've got this project on this team. I think you'd like it. And it was resilient retail. And it was like, that brought me to where I am. And then other than just those professional opportunities, like the connections I've built with people, some of my closest friends in this world are internet friends that I've never met in real life, which is crazy and weird. And like, I think back to the very first days when I was looking at the D2C space, you know, like Val Geisler was somebody who I was like, oh my God, I'm such a fan. And like, I had emailed her for a quote for an article and like, it was one of those like celebrity type feelings. And and now she's like, we text on a daily basis. She's one of my best friends. We hosted a podcast together, like just the craziness of what the platform has brought me. And that fake title that I have is yeah, it's bonkers. It's every day. I'm, I'm like, what is this platform and how did it, how did it come into my life in this way? (laughs) So many serendipitous connections have kind of led you to where you are today. eh? Yeah, exactly. Amazing. Going back just quickly, something that you mentioned during the Churnbuster era is how e-commerce companies were starting to clue up to the fact that, you know, acquisitions getting expensive and we better, you know, knuckle down on retention. Was that, Mm -hmm. was that quite a hard thing to get across back then? Or was it like, now is like the perfect time to talk about retention and the audience was just like, fuck, I need this. I get this. Yeah, it was a little bit of both. It was almost this, this like push and pull. So at first, when we first started coming out with this stuff, it's the argument between acquisition and retention was still very hot. Like one of the the best articles I've ever put out that got the most traction was actually an article called Retention versus Acquisition, the battle for D2C focus or something like that. And I just pulled a bunch of influencers and we collaborated all these ideas into one thing that gave some good opinions and helped people think through it. And there was so much conversation around it and so much, even some like arguing back and forth. So there was still this fight. And a lot of the fight was to get people to consider retention as important as we knew it was at Churnbuster. And we were still kind of like pulling people along that journey. But then once we started creating this like consistent content, like playing for keeps was 100% bootstrapped. Not, we didn't have any advertising money behind it. And yet the downloads were insane. Because it was like, oh, wait, this is different. And this is kind of the idea that I was talking about. You know, we really got into the tactical side of retention. Once we started talking about the argument and we got that part done, we got them on our train. Now we got to get, we got to tell them how to do it. And I think that's why it worked so well and why the conversation got so much traction is because we went, you know, all right, we're going to get you on our train and now let's go and teach you how to do it. And the response to playing for keeps was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is what we've been looking for. So yeah, it was a combination of, you know, a timely situation coming together and being serendipitous and also just understanding from the audience perspective, 
what we needed to say when to get them to kind of jump on the bandwagon. Yeah. Sounds like you started with a very strategic conversation first and then you went tactical second. Was that deliberate or was it something that you just kind of blended with when you were looking at the conversation and you responded to it? accordingly. Yeah, I think it was a little bit more of the latter, a little more organic. I mean, obviously there was there was strategy behind it and we're looking at SEO keywords and we're seeing the, you know, what is retention? All that stuff is going up and it's trending and you're seeing the conversations more. But I think at that point it was still so much of it was self-discovery for me too. So I was kind of building and learning in public as the industry was. So as an expert on customer retention, I wasn't an expert at the beginning and I became an expert through the discovery as the D2C operators became experts as well. So it just kind of matched up really well to that kind of that rhythm almost. Yeah, absolutely. Just went with the flow and it worked out. Yeah, yeah, it worked. I I feel like (laughs) I got a little bit lucky on that one. I mean, there was definitely strategy behind it, but there's also, and I think with any kind of organic marketing, there is a little bit of luck that goes involved that you've you found the right beat on it. Yeah, as a as a content and SEO agency, I try and cheat luck on a daily basis. So. Yeah, <laughs> same. <laughs> so I hear that. Going back to your serendipitous journey into the DTC world and all of the wonders that Twitter have brought you, you're now heading up resilient retail as a result of all of those connections. And I know a lot of work went into the initial conversations you had with the Shopify team even. Yeah. And it sounds like you've got some huge plans for resilient retail. What are you hoping that it will look like in a couple of years time? Oof, man, the couple of years vision is almost like so big in my head that it's terrifying, but in a very exciting way. So what you've seen from Resilient Retail so far is kind of mostly just a podcast and not even just that, like in season one, we also did some workshops and we have a Twitter and we're having some writers come in and repost, reformat things that we've learned from interviews into blog posts. We've got a newsletter. Ideally, I envision Resilient Retail as you know, internally, I keep using this this idea of an on-ramp into the rest of Shopify. So, you know, when people go through the retail point of sale, they're not just getting like a point of sale system with Shopify. They're also getting everything else that Shopify offers, the e-commerce side, the partnerships, the tools, the third-party apps, the connections, all of that. But with retail, you have to talk to them very specifically in their language. It's different than someone who's starting purely online. And so, Resilient acts as this kind of like, come like, here's an entryway into Shopify that you understand that's talking to you in your language. It's providing you with what you need. So then you can understand how to use all these tools. So with that in mind, and also we talked about the waterfall content, we started with a podcast because it leads to in three years, we're going to have this giant publication that's resilient retail, that's a community and we have local events and we're going to do like in real life workshops and maybe we'll open a resilient retail store and we'll use this kind of resilient acts as this hub or this brand of pure value and education and inspiration and connection that it can be so much more. And so you start to think about things like how a morning brews newsletter works. I'd love to have a resilient retail newsletter that feels a lot like that. I'd love to have Facebook groups. I'd love to have, you know, like other resilient retail ambassadors where there's a resilient retail Austin, Texas, and it's run by merchants and people who are empowered by resilient and Shopify to do it on their own. It's really becoming, you know, right now I'm the face of resilient retail. I'm, I'm the brains and the strategy behind this show and I'm the host. 
in three to five years, it should be so much bigger than me. There should be so many people that are empowered by it. Sounds like yeah, you're building uh, a media company, Kristen. Yes, <laughs> that is what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And the fact that you're responsible for like such a specific sub brand is just testament to how much work that goes into yeah. every single episode and the waterfall content that comes from it. Could you share a little bit about your ideation and production process for anyone who's seriously considering, you know, getting into this world or even creating something as lofty as a media sub brand, for lack of a better word? <laughs> I'll start with the ideation because I'm just going to talk for 30 minutes if I, if I just keep going. So you got you to keep me organized here. Okay. On ideation, I think this is the most important part is before you start any kind of show, you have to figure out what's your premise. What's your stance and what is your show? What's the purpose of it for the audience? Why do you exist? And so for us, it was very clearly like there is a hole in content. There is not a place for smaller brick and mortar retailers to go find inspiration, tactical information and, you know, trend reports on brick and mortar retail and how it's changing. And, and the pandemic kind of elevated this importance of the show to say, they're going through, you know, brick and mortar retailers going through things that no brick and mortar retailer has ever really had to go through before. So how are they supposed to figure that out? And so the premise of the show from day one was we have to help these people navigate what's going on, be on the ground with them, find the playbook of retail success that's being rebuilt right now out of kind of the stories that we can find. And, and so that's our, our premise. And that's the biggest thing. If you want to start any show why do you exist? What's your premise? Who are you helping solve what and how? And so that's where the ideation really started. From there, you know, the tricky part becomes where do you find those stories and where do you find those guests and how do you organize it into a season that makes sense and how do you figure out topics? So what I did was a lot of, you know, I actually just listened to the episode you did with Cameron Jenkins and she is my counterpart at Shopify and the retail content. I side. thought she might be. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And so we did some of this together, whereas, you know, she was figuring out on the SEO side, what are the topics people are searching for? What are they telling us that they want? I, we also did a lot of listening to internal sales calls and support calls and just picking out these little things of what are they asking about? Is it really that they need e-commerce 101 or are they looking for in-store strategies? That was so for season one, that was really the way I started going ideating on topics. And with season one, the feel of it was very, you know, the pandemic had happened. We launched this podcast in October. So it's kind of in that midst of like, we're starting to understand that this is a longer term thing. We're starting to understand that brick and mortar has to pivot and they have to do it fast. And those stories start to come out. So season one was very, let's investigate what resilience looks like. Let's investigate what a pivot looks like or what happened in the pandemic. And so those stories weren't super hard to find because everybody was doing them. So I went through, you know, customers and merchants and I scrolled through Instagram and I was talking with our support team and I created all these internal pipelines within Shopify of, hey, if you're talking to a merchant who's doing something cool, send it to me. I want to get them on the show. And it just becomes, you know, this win-win for everybody, like for a support person to say, oh, you're doing something really cool. Can we feature you on a show that makes them look good? It makes the merchant happy. It makes me happy because I don't have to go find them. And then it makes the audience happy because it's the stories they're looking for. So that was, you know, season one was kind of this exploration type of season. 
And my ultimate goal with it, this is another thing that I, I recommend a lot is if you're going to do seasons or segments or something like that, figuring out at the end of the day, what's the main goal of that series. So for season one, our ultimate goal was to find a signal within the audience. This is an audience we had never talked to before at Shopify. This is a brand new audience for me coming from D to C to more strictly retail, even though the two of those are blending into one now. And so what we were doing was let's have every conversation that we can possibly have and let's cover all these topics that we know are kind of important and then figure out based on downloads, based on subscriber surveys, based on reviews and conversations, which topics and which kind of guests and what kind of approach is really connecting with the audience. So that was season one ideation. Season two gets even more complicated, which is what I'm doing right now is okay, we've told the story of what happened during the pandemic. Like, I don't want to just keep talking about that again and again. It's a little heartbreaking to keep hearing like, oh, our doors shut down and we did this. So now the goal is, okay, we learned what resilience felt like and what it kind of looked like and what it meant in 2020. Now in 2021, I have the hypothesis that it's this, we're entering this rebuilding of retail or this renaissance of retail where things are going to forever change. And so we have to figure out what resilience acts like. We need to find the actual tactics and actions and things that store owners are doing that oftentimes have never been done before. They're just kind of like, they're trying hacky things right now. And it's really cool to watch them do it. So with season two, that's more the approach and making sure you have those kind of hypothesis or philosophy or mission behind whatever you're ideating. I think is the best first step for a podcast so that you can stay very focused because the hardest thing is like, sometimes you have to say no to people you really want to talk to because it just might not fit in with that season and being able to have that line internally of this is why I'm, I'm saying no to this, or this is why I'm saying yes to this, or this is why I'm going to push this guest to talk about something they normally don't is because at the end of the day, I know what the audience is looking for or what I want to give to the audience based on what they've told me. So that's ideation mm -hmm. in a not very small nutshell. <laughs> I like big nutshells. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That was good. Great you analogy. Keep that in. It's, it's happening. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> Love it. What about the production process before we, you know, well, hit record, I suppose. You were talking about how everything kind of falls apart sometimes when you're trying to plug things in together. What does your, like production process look like in terms of executing on episodes uh from start to finish you know yeah uh every podcaster ever will tell you that like technology is the bane of their existence and almost every podcast host has had a situation where like you go to listen back to it and you're like what in the hell happened here just within season one like my microphone just decided not to work for an entire episode so it's like just one track of the guest. We had a lot of kind of audio bleed issues with echo, all these things. It just, it's always going to be an issue. So if you're trying to start a podcast, just like prepare yourself mentally for everything to fail all the time when it shouldn't, when it makes no sense to fail. So we do with resilient, we do both audio and video, which adds some complexity to what it is on the production side. Do you want me to go all the way back to like prepping an interview and prepping a guest i would actually yeah, let's do it I, I, those are important things yeah i think so and i personally would get a lot of value from that because i like i said at the beginning like this is really scrappy <laughs> for me still like we're, we're yeah. on a shitty little webcam right now just for everyone listening <laughs> and 
is yeah i feel like i'm tapping into the the mind of someone who's who's been through this so yeah don't hold back yeah trying to find these systems and figure it out is a whole thing so i'm happy to give everybody all of my secrets because i'm like it's taken me years to get and, to this and point. it allows me to collect myself because i'm still flustered from admitting that i like big nutshells <laughs> so please waffle away <laughs> there we go there we go so all the way back to you know once i i figure out who my guests are one thing I really do, especially now, especially now that I have a lot more inbound interest in the show, is I need to make sure that when I hop on an interview with somebody, I know what we're talking about. I know what topics they want to talk about because you want to set up your guests for success. So one of the things I always ask is like, how do you see this being the most successful conversation for you? What do you want to talk to me about? What do you want to tell me about? So I actually have, you know, we have both an application form. It's kind of a, a call to action of, do you want to be a guest? You can fill it out. In season two, we had a very specific question that said, give me one to three strategies you've done in your store in the last six months that you want to talk about. And, you know, we also have some influencers on there. So there's a caveat to like, if this question doesn't apply to you, list one to three specific topics you want to talk about. And that's my first kind of energy check of if somebody wants to be on a show, but they can't take the two minutes to write down specific things, I'm not going to have you on my show. It's just a really quick way for me to kind of weed out that, you know, you want to come on and waffle about something or tell me about your story, which is great, but it's not what we're trying to do on this season. We're trying to do very specific topics. So that's my first thing. And then once I've got people, you know, okay, we're booked. I really want to interview you. I do. And this is an extra process that isn't always necessary. You know, with some people, I don't do it if I know them, but if I don't know the person and I want to get deeper into understanding what they want to talk about, I do a 15 minute pre-interview call with them. This is another like energy check because the worst thing is getting on with someone and you're five minutes in and you're like, I've asked you all my questions. And you're giving me one word answers and I'm dragging you along this interview. And now I don't want to publish this one. So that's the second step where I'm just, I'm just saying, Hey, here's what resilience about. Here's kind of the process we're going to go. Can you just tell me like about these topics, what you want to talk about? I'm like furiously writing down notes because they're giving me like the interview already. And that's just a really good check of like, all right, this is going to be a really good interview. And at that point you're able to say like, you know, I just did one of these yesterday and I was like, Oh, we're going to do three interviews, not one, because you just talked to me for 30 minutes and you gave me three topics that we want to dive into. So that also helps. Then you go into the prepping for the interview stage. For me, this is, I want to prep my questions because I can get very distracted as you've heard me talking and waffling. Now I go on all these. It's tangents. valuable waffle though. That's why I like to call <laughs> it's it. It's a valuable waffle. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Valley waffles. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, and you go into interview prep. And for me, what I do is I'm just going to Google the person's name. I'm going to Google the business. I'm going to go to my news tab and I'm going to just read everything I can possibly read about them. And I'm going to copy and paste anything I find into a Google doc. Also any of my notes from the interview calls, anything that they said they want to talk to. I just toss it all into a jumbled page. And then from there, what I do is I find... Uh, and this is actually a new process. I build my interviews like sandwiches, <laughs> which is a really fun way to do it is from that I find, okay, what is the meat of this topic or this, this interview? What is the one thing I want to make sure that we talk about? And I want to make sure that we go deep into, and I'll set that as the meat. And then from there, you know, my, especially in season one, we had a very similar format, which, you know, the beginning, which is the bread was like the intro and the tell me about your brand and tell me what happened during COVID. 
And then from there you have, okay, we've got our bread and then we know that we want to get to this meat. So what's the, like, what's the cheese that bridges us over into that? How do we, how do we softly arc into this meat? And then after the meat, it's okay. Is there, you know, lettuce and tomatoes and mayo on it? What are the things that then bring us to the closing, which the same for, you know, every single interview in season one, we asked, what does resilience mean to you? It was the last question. And so I was able to say, you know, with every interview, I knew what the bread was. I knew the beginning and the end, and then I would find the meat. And then I would build an interview based on that. But the thing is I would build these docs that have very specific questions, but also understood in the back of my mind that I might hit on two of these. I just have to get to that meat. I might have a thousand questions that are not written down, being able to allow for this kind of not following a template and following the conversation, but also having guideposts for myself. Uh, so my ADHD doesn't just come out and I waste two hours with somebody. That's very helpful. And, you know, some people send these, these outlines to their guests that are very like, here is every single question. And I think this is just up to you as a host, what you like. I tend to not send very specific questions, except for, you know, I usually send them ahead of time. Okay, I'm going to ask you, what does resilience mean to you? Because it's kind of a weird question to off the cuff know how to answer. It's like asking someone to define the word witch. Like, it's just a weird thing that you need to think about. But I'll send them like, you know, I'll send them a topic overflow. So like, here's kind of where I start, what the meat of it is, and what we're going to end with. So they know, okay, I'm going to prep around these topics. But that leaves them a little openness to come in and say, we can dig into things that they're not ready to. And then we get into the production side. So we get them booked. We use, you know, riverside.fm is what I use to record. And we use that because it has separate streams for audio and video. And it pulls like a 4K stream of video, which, you know, I have the same camera that Toby from Shopify has. So we were like, if we're going to use this nice camera, and we're going to buy a neon sign to put behind you. We better be pulling yeah. some really nice video It's, it's funny you mentioned Riverside because I was literally just evaluating it yesterday, checking out the features Oh, page. nice. Yeah. Looks awesome. Yeah. I We've been really happy with it. No major issues. And I'm still going to use it. So that's I'll my, call that an endorsement. my vetting for Riverside. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so uh, we go into recording. My every time, either my microphone doesn't connect or my headphones don't connect or my camera's not turned on. Uh, I've had a situation where my camera died in the middle of the interview. And so I had to like go find the charger while they were talking to me and plug it in. And then I was like turning it on and off. So while he was talking, I had it off because I knew in the editing, you're going to pull the guest up in the front. So it didn't matter if my camera was on. But all these crazy tech things can happen in the middle of an interview. Um, but we record and then I have an external production agency that helps me with the editing and putting the show together because I'm doing everything else. Like there's no way I could ever do that. So from there, it was, you know, we dropped things into an air table and we had all these automations where, you know, you have the interview file, they're editing it, they're working on it. But I also had to write and record the intro, the outro. We got the transcript. We use sonics.ai for transcripts. And I had to go in there and highlight, you know, the beginning of every episode, there's this like cold quote from the interview. So I'm having to go pick those, pulling out things for a video. That is all happening kind of in tandem with recording. It's just this constant like process, which you know about this. And then once we get the final episode, we produce both audio and video. They have slightly different formats because, you know, it doesn't really make sense to have this like long drawn out Kristen intro on a video. On the video, we just kind of jump into the interview. And then once that all comes together, 
we use transistor.fm for hosting and publishing and then it goes out into the world and hopefully people like it <laughs> amazing okay I, I i know exactly how to start a podcast from scratch now and exactly what to do to make this one better thank you <laughs> Of course. <laughs> Man, you really you really uh spilled the beans on everything there. Hey. I know I did. I got so many I so many secrets, but it's just, you know, in, in my mind, these are not the things that make or break a podcast or or you know, I'm not giving away some secret that then makes a bunch of competition around me or a bunch of creators that are better than me. This is just the stuff that's like it's the messy part that you got to figure out. And if I've gone through the painful parts of finding systems, I want to give that to as many people as possible because even when people say the podcast market is too saturated, I just don't believe that's a thing. I think there is a perspective from every single person in the world that's worth sharing and worth hearing. So if I can make it easier for someone to go tell their story, even if it's they get 500 downloads, it's 500 people who have heard your story. I think that's worth it. Uh, and I think that's that's worth getting these things out so we can have more more of us Ex out here talking. exactly and if a SaaS startup can still create a blog that's successful then podcasting is a no-brainer i'd say yeah do you do any like deliberate distribution or do you kind of rely on the powerhouse that is shopify to get the the word out yeah so the interesting thing about starting a podcast within shopify within a specific target market of shopify which is retail is you know, you automatically think, oh, Kristen's going to get this like huge push from Shopify. And so it's automatically going to be popular. It wasn't really the case. It was way more bootstrapped in our case. So, you know, this is a new audience for Shopify. So even the ads we're putting out might not be as successful as they would be in like three years when we really know the audience. So it was a very bootstrapped kind of promotional thing. And it was a small team. Like I said, at the beginning, I'm still sitting on so much content that I'm like, we could do so much with this, but I'm only one person. But as far as distribution, you know, Twitter is a big one for me just because I have that community. We leaned in season one a lot on using my network to promote. And so that was things like sharing snippets, sharing audiograms, sharing full episode links, doing like tweet storm kind of reviews of the, the podcast. Um, we also repurpose things into blog posts and those are on the retail blog that Cameron Jenkins helps kind of run and get them out. We also ran a resilient retail Twitter because we thought it would kind of make sense. YouTube has been another place for us where we're taking all these videos and we're putting it up and making sure that there's just all these different access points where you can find our content. We did a workshop in November, which was kind of this, we had two email marketers come on and live write an email series for brick and mortar retailers. It was amazing. And because it was kind of this like workshoppy thing, we were able to pull in a lot of a new audience and do advertising and partnership promotion and all this stuff. Then they came to it and then they were told about the show, obviously. And that was a huge driver of people coming in. And then lastly, really leveraging the guests on the show of however I can make it as easy as possible for them to share the content that they've shared with me, I'm going to do it. So that was things like, you know, we sent everybody some resilient swag because who doesn't want like a hat that says resilient on it. And then you get a lot of free people posting, like, look at my sweet new hat. Uh, that was a really simple way we do it. Otherwise, like making sure, you know, one thing we did was uh, Michelle Grant from Lively is a good example of this. We wanted her to share it on her Instagram because she has a really great following. What we could have done was say, here's our artwork and our graphics, go put it on your Instagram. 
But if you went and looked at her Instagram, like our graphics are very like black and red and bold and strong. And her Instagram feed is very like light and airy and white. So we would go and we say, okay, we need to make a different graphic for her. So we made like one that matched her Instagram page. And then we gave her the copy for it and we made it really easy for her to share. And then it was, you know, we're actually going this extra mile for our guests so that sharing is beneficial for them. It's not just like, look what Shopify did. And I was involved with it. It's more, look what I did. And Shopify just happened to be kind of behind it. Um, I think those are some of the biggest promotional channels. And there's, (laughs) the thing is like, I could sit here and list off a thousand other ones that I would love to be able to do that I just can't right now. There are so many ways to promote a podcast. The one thing I will say is a piece of advice that I've kind of learned, especially I think this last couple of months, just doing some rethinking is with the podcast. I think the most important thing about promotion is thinking about the user behavior on each channel. So when you listen to podcasts, it's usually something you're intentionally going to do, right? You're intentionally going to Spotify or to Apple podcasts and you're opening it up and you're saying, I'm going to listen to a podcast. There's not really any other journey into that behavior other than intentionally doing it. So, you know, I used to share links to full episodes on Twitter and then I'm looking at it like, no one's clicking on this. And then you start to think about, well, of course, like if I'm scrolling Twitter I don't have any intention to go listen to an hour long podcast. It just doesn't make sense to go from that platform to that platform. Same thing with like email. You're going through your newsletters in the morning. You're really just kind of like reading within the email. Maybe you go to get some further reading or you save something for later. Um, But I don't really think it's natural to open an email and then just happenstance, go listen to a podcast. That's not really how it works. So the way I've been trying to retrain my mind into promotion is thinking natively about each channel. So if I want to promote on Twitter, actually sending a link to the podcast probably isn't great. Giving you a summary of this episode, which you can read on Twitter, get all the content, engage with it on that platform. And then when you make that decision later on in your day of, oh, I'm going to go listen to a podcast, all of a sudden now resilient is kind of in your head because I've hit you on all these different channels. And then you're going to go listen to that episode there. So almost trying to, you know, just really think about how you repurpose that content for each channel natively. So then it ultimately drives them around to that action that is so coveted of pressing play on your podcast. But you got to think about it in this, like from a user perspective, it's just not natural to jump from one platform to podcasting usually because it's just a totally different way to engage with content. You're so right. And like, I know for a lot of people and myself included until recently, podcast promotion felt like this very ephemeral thing. You know, it's like you said, the entry point into a podcast episode, they're not going to be clicking on a link. Like the the truth of it is, and the crux of what you just said is doing the things that worked before and doing it deliberately and with, with care, you know, things like giving people some swag. It's very simple, but it works so well because, well, it sounds like you're making your guests a part of the resilient retail story. Yes. Yes. That is really huge. And it's, you're right. It's, it's down to very simple things. Like I could have hired a virtual assistant to do all my scheduling, to do all of that in season one, but I found it very important that like, we want these guests to feel like they are a part of this story and a part of this, like resilient should be this bigger mission, which we also got lucky that it's called resilient retail because then we get to pull out just this word of like resilient and that can become its own kind of like a movement community and yeah, yeah, movement. And so even the small thing of like 
you're going to hear from me from booking to application to prep to pre-interview prep to tech to swag. It's all going to be coming from Kristen LaFrance because I thought that was really important. And I'm going to keep doing that as long as I can. Obviously, there's going to be a day where I'm going to just like lose my mind and my sanity on that. But yeah, it's just it's those small things of taking care in every single channel you can. So you're building I, I've been thinking a lot of like building for the first hundred listeners and the first within the first hundred listeners are going to be your guests as well. So you're building for those people. And it really, it's just that, that thoughtful care and not just kind of pushing things out because you want to, but yeah, it's, it's the crux of podcasting that we are, you can't really force the behavior of going to listen to a podcast. You're kind of at the whim of somebody making a conscious decision outside of your influence. So Really, you're just trying to inception them in other ways so that when they go make that decision, you're at the top of their mind. Exactly. And like trying to build anticipation. So when a new uh, like episode does go live, they, there's some kind of excitement to listen to it, whether or it, it's yes. like, oh, I might learn so- something in the first five or 10 minutes because, you know, people bounce or whatever the correct word is for podcast. But yeah. Creating anticipation. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can you know, get your guests to help you create some anticipation. Like, Hey, I just recorded and it was so much fun. Can't wait for you guys to see this. Or like, let me pull a soundbite out and throw it up on Twitter before it comes out. Or even things like, you know, I've done this a lot where maybe I'm stuck on an interview and and I'm like trying to prep for it. And I don't really know what the meat should be of it. I'll just go to my community and say, Oh, Hey, I'm interviewing all birds. What do you want to hear from them? And yeah, there's going to be some suggestions that like aren't going to fit with my mission of what I want to do. And that's fine. I could just pocket those for later. But then there's also going to be things of like, if I get him to answer this question, they are going to come listen to the podcast because then I can go to that reply later on and say, oh, hey, we talked about it. Go listen. Yeah, have fun. Exactly. (laughs) These are all things I need to get better at. Oh, I mean, these are all hard things to do too, because it's, it's so much work. There's so much to do. There's so much you can do. So I'm listing off like a thousand things that you can do. You don't have to do all of them. I think the the thing is finding the pieces that you have a superpower in on these specific things I'm talking about, and like picking your stack of tactics and sticking to it for a bit. Yeah, totally. Have you got another five minutes? There are two questions I really yes, want to ask you. Yes, of course. Amazing. I've got, I've got nothing after this. I've got plenty of time. Awesome. Cool. Um, <laughs> so I know you're like a huge fan of DTC, direct-to-consumer, mm-hmm. which is kind of how you got into the, well, the world of Shopify, I suppose. And it's how I discovered you as well, because I also find it so fascinating. Like some of the brands in the space are so cool. Yeah. And you've said, and I'm going to I'm going to quote you here, how e-commerce is one of the biggest engines that moves our societies, our cultures and our communities along. If you were forced to start a DTC brand tomorrow, say someone said, Kristen, you no longer work for Shopify tomorrow, you get to work. What would you build? And you're not allowed to say dog apparel. <laughs> oh, yeah, you, you caught me. That's of course what I was going to say. Uh, no dog D to C business. Hmm. I think I would start a brand in the sexual wellness space. This space really interests me because I think one of the most powerful things e-commerce and D to C can do is change experiences that have previously been baked into culture. So like just the thought of you know, now there's all these unbound babes in mod. And now I can't think of any other ones, but there's all these brands that are coming out with like 
crazy sex toys and starting conversations about sexual wellness that have never been talked about before. And like, imagine 10 years ago, go like the only way you did it was you walked into like a weird store that made you feel really uncomfortable. Like, I think everybody did this in like high school or early college. Like you and your friends are like, Oh, let's go into the sex store. And like, you're really uncomfortable and you're giggling at everything that looks like a giant penis. Buying condoms was either an embarrassing experience or as you got older, it was hilarious. It was nothing in between. Like, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's nothing in between. And and no matter how you look at it, that wasn't a good shopping experience. I mean, even just thinking about like having to go buy tampons as a woman monthly. I remember like when I was younger, now it's like, whatever, I don't care. I'm at an age where it doesn't matter. But, you know, back then th- that was such an awkward experience or like, you know, my husband goes and buys now. That wasn't something that somebody would do, you know, back 10 years ago. And so that space is really exciting to me because I think they're doing, a lot of these brands are doing really well because they're able to use e-commerce to change a shopping experience completely and to make it something fun and silly and also educational and community-based. And the brands are doing really well because like now online shopping for that is better than any in-person experience you can get. And I think that's the power of D2C. When you do really good customer experiences, that's how you build loyalty. That's how you build community. And the sexual wellness space is just like ripe for doing this in so many different ways. So I don't even know what my product would be, but yeah, I would have to go into the sexual wellness space. It'd be also like you get to just post silly puns and <laughs> awkward things like how that's so fun. We've already made like two nut jokes. So. I mean, we're, we're already there. Uh, like, we're already there. <laughs> Nutshell.co coming coming to a Whole Foods near you. Perfect. <laughs> Amazing. That's a that's such a good answer. I know, like sex tech and sexual wellness is, like you say, ripe for disruption, and yeah. I think uh, it's getting a lot of attention at the moment too. Yeah. Yeah. One last question before we jump off. One thing I've noticed about you is you're not afraid to get personal with the content that you create. You kind yeah. of share things that are close to your heart and what I would call the real stuff, the real shit. Yeah. How do you manage that nagging head in, sorry, the nagging voice in your head that tells a lot of us not to publish something that might make us seem so vulnerable? Yeah. I think, you know, I've, I've been on this kind of personal journey the last couple of years through dealing with my own traumas, dealing with my mental health, walking through understanding my own emotions. And it's been so beautiful for me to do it. And every time I talk to somebody about any of these things, I get a positive response back. And so I think it's come from experience of just seeing that every single time I am vulnerable, if I'm being truly vulnerable, and there's a difference there, you can see like vulnerability that feels like it's not a hundred percent true versus like authentic vulnerability of I will tell you everything and I will be an open book about it. Anytime I've done that, I've gotten nothing but positive feedback. Secondly, I think just from a marketing perspective, I was just so tired of like the bland articles and the newsletters that just weren't exciting and everything I kept coming around to anything that I engage with is usually coming from a person and you're getting to know them so that you can trust the content that they're putting out. And I just saw this as like, we need creators who will do this, who will go out and be silly and be real. Even if we're talking about customer retention, like all the way down to the simplest thing. One of the first tweet threads I, I put out that got really popular was what about outdoor voices? 
And I started it by saying like, how in the hell did I spend $300 in the last six months? Like, I didn't mean to do that. It's out of my budget. <laughs> I and slipped even- and I fell on my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I think just even coming from that perspective of like, I'm going to tell you about retention strategies, but I'm coming from a place of like, here's why I know what they are because I've gone through them and I embarrassingly spent too much. And giving that, it also builds just so much more connection and community and people are more kind and helpful when you do that. And then lastly, like I also grew up with two older brothers. So just being like self-deprecating humor has been in my wheelhouse since I was like walking and talking. It was the way we dealt with everything in our yeah. family. Be- being um, British, that's how we do things here. Too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just like, you know, being able to to laugh at myself and like bring out the things that I know other people are going through that maybe don't want to laugh at themselves about it to be able to see someone else. It's like, oh, wait, this is like, you know, this is all not that serious. And And I think something I've really learned in this industry is like the gurus out there, like people think I'm an expert. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Like all this stuff that I just told you about podcasting, I just learned through fire. It's not because I had some intuition or guru magicness that nobody else can get. It's just because like I have been going through these processes and learning and sharing as I go and kind of reflecting on it as I go. And it's what I say to everybody. Like some people will DM me and say like, I've been following you for so long and I was scared to reach out. And I'm like, why just come say hi. Like we're all just normal people showing up, pretending like we know what we're doing, trying to do our best with the best intention and like cross our fingers that it works. And I I have just found that taking that approach and being very vulnerable and open with it it works really well for me. Might not be for everybody, but it definitely works really well for me. Yeah. The only difference is that some of us are louder about the shit that we do when we don't <laughs> yeah. know what we're doing, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Oh man, Kristen, this has been a fun chat. Where so much fun. could people learn more about you? Yeah. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter at KD LaFrance. Um, LaFrance is spelled like L.A., the country France, pretty simple. Twitter at Kristen.LaFrance. And then Resilient Retail is available anywhere you get your podcasts and also YouTube and we're on Twitter. And if you just look up Resilient Retail by Shopify, you will find everything you need to. Amazing. Kristen, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. This is so much fun. Thanks for listening. Before you dash, just a quick note to share a free ebook we just published called The Content Operations Playbook. If you're interested in content marketing and SEO, then this ebook is for you. We lift the hood up on our own editorial and content production processes from hiring writers, creating solid content briefs, polishing content to be the best it can be, and of course, distributing it to actually generate traffic. It's totally free and you can download it over at grizzle.io forward slash content ops. That's www.grizzle.io forward slash content ops. And hey, if you enjoy this podcast, feel free to subscribe. We've got a lot of great conversations lined up with experts in the world of business, marketing, and entrepreneurship coming up. Thanks again.